Hey, deserving listeners. Today, I'm going to answer a bunch of your emails. And at the end of this episode, I'm going to have an interview with Lori Gottlieb, who published a new book that I think many of you might be interested in, particularly you therapists. But first, let me introduce the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This first email is from famous patron Lyndon, all the way in Ireland, wrote uh, us to have us talk about the following thing. Basically, Lyndon is asking us uh, the following question. How do you deal with people who are trying to involve you in their projective identification defenses? Um, He actually wrote a pretty long email about this. And I really loved his email because he uh, talked uh, in the language that I use for projective identification. I have a particular object relations language when I use uh, these terms and um, my students have to learn it. And it's just really fascinating that listeners to the podcast would start using this very particular language. Um, It's not that foreign to other object relations people and other psychodynamic people, but it's a little particular in the way that I word it. Anyway, um, so uh, interesting question. How, how do we deal with people who are trying to involve us in their projective identification defenses? Um, f- well, before going forward, I should say that I've done some deep dives on projective identification, and you can listen to those. But just in short, if I was to explain it very quickly, When we are growing up, we internalize the relationships that were significant to us, particularly with our parents, right? So the relationship that you had with your mother, you internalize that, and it became what I call an internalized internalized relationship representation, or sometimes called an introject. But I'll just call it an internalization. And it's important to know that we internalize the relationship. We don't internalize just the other person. We internalize them and us, and the relationship between them. We observe the other, we observe the self, we, we observe the relationship, and we internalize that. And um, an example of how this works developmentally is that in the beginning of life, we have no ability to soothe ourselves. We have no ability to re- regulate our emotions. And as our parents regulate our emotions and take care of us and tell us that everything's going to be okay, make us feel safe, make us feel like it's okay when... Um, you know, we feel upset or something, we internalize that relationship. And then later on, we can actually soothe ourselves without our parents being there. So you're a year and a half years old, and you're um, tired or cranky or something. And you lose it and you start to throw a tantrum. And then your mother comes up to you and, and says like, oh, what's going on? And you look to your mother and your mother doesn't seem to be freaking out. And your mother seems to care about you. And your mother is reflecting your emotions like, oh, you must be really cranky right now. I can see that. And during that time, you're internalizing that relationship, the soothing, caring, reflective, mirroring mother and the uh, soothed self, the self being soothed and the relationship of warmth. and And that whole thing gets internalized. And then later, when you're four years old and you're cranky, you don't need your mother to be there. You can actually recall this dyad that's been internalized and soothe yourself in the process. Also, you can, through this relationship that you've internalized, you can start to soothe other people too. So when you grow up, you can soothe your friends or your kids or your spouse or your parents for that matter because you've internalized the soothing other and you can project onto the other person, the person who needs to be soothed. Now, that's one of the benefits to internalization, but one of the disbenefits is that when you experience mistreatment, you also internalize that as well, and it becomes a part of your personality. So, for example, if you internalize an abusive parent, say your mother would beat you regularly, then you internalize that relationship as a abusive mother, as a hurt, abused, scared self, and as a relationship of bad things. And then later, you need to recreate that. So uh, the idea goes is that when we have an internalized relationship, and it we have a number of, uh, and it's a bad relationship, then we have a lot of internal strife around that. Uh, you know, one common example I tell my students is that if you have a critical parent, say your dad is being very critical of you, 
And you internalize that relationship. You internalize the criti- critical other and the criticized self, the self that feels incompetent and stupid and terrible, and then the relationship of, of bad. Then that becomes a fixed part of your personality. And it left to your own devices in a vacuum, you end up uh, that internal internalization has a lot of activity and energy around it to the point where it has to express itself somehow because it's a part of your neurons, part of your personality, part of your psyche. And one of the manifestations in isolation the person will go through is they'll self-criticize a lot. So they'll, they'll have this recurring dialogue in their mind about how stupid they are and how much of a fraud they are and how incompetent they are and how everyone can see how incompetent they are. So that is an internalized voice that is telling the self object. So you have a self object and another object. So the other object in your mind is being critical of the self object. And you're observing all that and that's just happening in isolation. That's a lot of strife, a lot of pain and anxiety and uh, strife can happen from that uh, process, right? I think we've all been there to some extent. Well, it's much more palatable and acceptable and relaxing to actually externalize that relationship, to find someone else to involve in that dyad. So you'll find someone to criticize you, and then you'll feel criticized by this outside person. And by externalizing that relationship, it, it feels better. It still feels bad because someone's criticizing you, which never feels good. But it feels better than self-criticism in, in a nutshell. You know, defenses and protective identification and internalizations and personality is pretty complex. But I hope you get the simplistic version of this. Also, you can find another person to criticize. You can actually find another person to be you when you were growing up while you embody your dad who was critical and you criticize the other person. All this is subconscious, by the way. You actually don't – you're not consciously thinking, oh, I need to externalize this dyad, uh, so I'm going to find someone to criticize. It's all subconscious, and if you ask the person – Hey, you seem like you're being critical like your dad. They would say, "No, I'm not. I'm cr- I'm critical. Be- I'm not being critical. I'm being honest. That person is incompetent and they need to be told what they're doing wrong." So, it's all completely out of their awareness. So, this applies to so many things in life. I I could almost say that every relationship in every moment is involving some kind of internalized diet that's being recreated either functionally or dysfunctionally. When you are taking care of your spouse when they're sick, you're involving a dyad that you internalized when you were young that had to do with someone taking care of you. When you are concerned about someone's well-being, when you're soothing someone, when a therapist is taking care of a client, when a client is allowing themselves to be taken care of, when you're teaching someone, when you're and bad things, when you're criticizing or or hurting someone's feelings or ignoring someone or rejecting someone. There's very common bad internalizations that we all have to some extent. It's just a matter of degree. We all have a critical dyad. We all have a rejecting dyad. We all have a soothing dyad. We all have a taking care of dyad. And, you know, but the very common foundational dyads are critical and rejecting in terms of bad uh, internalizations. So, uh, that is the beginning of projective identification, the be- you know, object relations. This is sort of a contemporary, my way of describing it, version of object relations and, and contemporary psychodynamic thinking. And so there's a lot of defenses that can be involved to rid the self of these internalized bad dyads. And one of the defenses is projective identification. So uh, when – so famous patron Lennon is asking – Well, if someone is involving – oh, so another point that I need to make here is that when we are externalizing our dyads, we actually will find people that fit our dyad uh, as close as we can get it. So if we have a critical dyad on the inside, you know, our dad criticized us and we felt like shit and incompetent, then we'll try to find – and we prefer to – project out the critical side of that and we prefer to retain the childhood criticized self side of that dyad then we will actually subconsciously be attracted to people who have the early signs of criticism people who are outspoken people who are quote-unquote honest radically honest people who are slightly edgy and angry you know they have edges to them 
you know, whatever the early signs are, you will pick up on that subconsciously because you're like, ooh, this is going to be a good person that I can project that critical uh, father onto while I get to retain my childhood self of being of feeling victimized and criticized and secretly angry and resentful. And so you might even marry someone like that because they really fit that external, you know, depending on the, um, the, the, the amount of dysfunction you went through as a child, depending on how strong that internalization is, you will have more rigid needs to uh, utilize project, projective identification and therefore more of a need to find someone that really fits it. So, you know, some people will come to me in therapy and they'll just be like, you know, uh, I'm in a relationship and my husband's very critical. And then once we look into it, it's like, well, they dated a lot of people who are critical. And then once we look into it even further, it's like, oh, their their parents were critical of them. And they uh, internalized that and then proceeded to be attracted to critical people, even though they didn't really know it. You know, they weren't really aware of the fact that they were attracted to critical people. And so, uh, so, so you, not only are you uh, attracted to people who are, uh, who fit your neat, you know, your externalization, but also you will socialize others to fit with it even more specifically. So you might find someone who's kind of critical, but given the level of dysfunction in your psyche, you actually need them to be more critical. So you actually socialize them as the word we use, essentially subconsciously manipulate the, the other person to criticize you. And the way that you might do this, this is a common scenario, is you might act irresponsible. You know, you might screw up the laundry or you might show up late to an appointment or you might... Um, I don't know, not pay your bills on time or say silly things or something. And this is, and this might also be completely out of your awareness. Like you might actually uh, find yourself being, ha being less competent around certain people. Like there are people who I work with who will say, when I'm talking to this person, I feel very smart and competent. But when I feel that when I talk to this other person, I feel very incompetent. Like my words, I trip over my words and I can't really get them out. And I don't really understand why. Well, one of the reasons might be is because that person, you have involved them in your projective identification process to the point where you need that person to be critical of you because you need to externalize that dyad because it's giving you a lot of busted up feelings on the inside. And one of the ways that you have learned to socialize other people to criticize you is to shut down your ability to think straight and talk straight. And again, this isn't conscious, right? It's, it's completely out of your awareness. And so by socializing, so you might socialize people to reject you. You might socialize people. Now let's say we switch it around. Like, um, I am the one who is rejecting and, you know, so say I was, I was rejected, abandoned as a child, you know, my parents got divorced and I interpreted that scenario as being rejected and abandoned by, by one or both of my parents and which it can very much feel like in a rational way. And then I retain that uh, dyad growing up and in, in later in life. And on the inside in, in a vacuum, I have this internal strife of this battling dyad in, internally of a part of me that is rejecting the self and another part of me that feels rejected by the self. Well, that's a lot of pain to go through. And so it's much easier to externalize that. And so, but let's say for whatever reason, I just want to identify with the rejecting side. Maybe I like the power of that or something. And so I might find other people who are rejectable. I might be attracted to people who are rejectable. I might be, I might socialize other people to uh, be rejectable. Uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head of a scenario like this. Um, let's say a man is attracted to women with really low self-esteem, let's say, and he ends up projecting his self onto her, which, you know, when he was growing up being rejected, he felt very low self-esteem because he was being rejected and abandoned. And so he projects that onto this woman, uh, partially because she actually does have low self-esteem and he is attracted to her because of that. And then he proceeds to reject her and say, you are, you need to work on your self-esteem. Like if, if, 
if we're going to be in a relationship together, you got to have higher self-esteem. You, know, you got to work on that. What's wrong with you? You know, that kind of thing. That vibe, you know, not a lot of people would say those exact words, but you that vibe of you aren't good enough for me and um, and so I'm going to leave you because of that or something. So, so we are not only attracted to people that fit our need for recreation of these previous relationships, but we actually will socialize and sort of make sure that that happens in the relationship. So what FPL, what famous patron Lennon is asking is, how uh, how do we deal with people who are trying to involve us in those protective identification defenses? Because not only do we do that, but other people around us will do that. And if that if other people have particularly toxic internalizations because they went through significant mistreatment when they were young, they might be uh, very uh, compelled to involve us, particularly if they're close to us, in their protective identification defenses, and it can feel very difficult to be through so to go through. So, for example, uh, you're at work and someone, um, you know, you're getting closer to a coworker because you're working more with her or something. And she says something like, she says something to you like, well, I, I know you're I know you're a total stickler for this sort of thing. But, you know, I, I just feel like we should be putting our chairs over here. So but and in your head, when she says that to you, you're like am I a stickler for that kind of thing? I feel like I'm not a stick. I feel like she's accusing me of something. I feel like she's accusing me of being like rigid or stern or unreasonable. Uh, How did this happen? Whereas other people at work wouldn't word it that way. They would say like, Hey, um, could we put the chairs over here? Uh, Is that okay? Or what do you think about putting the chairs over here? You know, it's a different way of communicating you know, a a way that you can actually socialize or make sure that a recreation is occurring is by kind of pushing things to another level, for example. And I hope it, I hope it's clear to what I'm saying here is like, you know, you're the coworker walks up to you and is like, so I know you're, I know you're really a stickler for this sort of thing. And so I'm really sorry for bothering you with this, but could we put the chairs over here? There's a subtle dig there, you know, there's a subtle insult or, communication about that person's anger and feelings toward and maybe even hostility towards you. And so at that moment, and you repeat this over and over and over again with this person. So, so now you're compelled, now you're propelled into a position where you have to like prove that you're not a stickler to this person. And that kind of throws you off kilter. And now you're trying to be really nice to that person. You're, Oh, I don't, I don't care about chairs, even though you kind of do, but not as much as she kind of said. So, so, that's just one example of someone trying to the, – the feeling that you get when you're trying to – when you're sucked into someone's projective identification process. Um, another one would be like over time uh, – I have a lot of work examples because I've been there before. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I was at work – this is years ago – and this woman I was working with, she – uh, I would uh, let's see how do I say this without um, revealing who it is. Um, I'm sure none of you would know who, who this person was, but so this person had grown up, as far as I can tell, with a lot of mistreatment and a lot of abuse, and so, but I didn't know that at the time, and I don't know if I it would have uh, helped me go through this. But the thing that she did was. Um, you know, at the university, uh, we're very collaborative as professors and staff and all these, you know, there's there's just a lot. You People say, oh, you're a professor, you're like, you teach all the time. And, you know, I always say in the podcast, I, I barely teach, honestly. Like, I teach like five to ten hours a, a week. The rest of the time, I'm doing all this administrative stuff and and planning and advising and meetings and all that kind of stuff. So, um, we're involving ourselves with a lot of, a lot of these people. And you know, one of these colleagues, this is again, you know, I don't know, 15 years ago or something. And the thing that she did to me was she, um, would, we, we would collaborate. And so I, I would sometimes have a project that I was in charge of and I would need her to help me with it. Um, as all the professors needed to participate in that kind of thing. And so as I was the lead, I would divvy up, I would delegate to different people and, and 
the thing uh, with everyone else is they, you know, they they took the delegation and and ran with it. But with her, she would she would over time. I realized that there was this pattern where she would screw up her part of the job every single time in this like glorious fashion, <laughs> like. And she would come back to me and she'd be like, okay, I worked really hard on this. And, and she would give me her, her result. And I'd be like, oh, cool. You know, and I'd go look at it and I'd, I'd be looking at it, evaluating. At first, I'm like assuming it's going to be great because I just trust people. But then as time goes on, I'm like, wait a second. This is like gloriously off the mark. I mean, it is, um, I mean, what is happening here? Like, how did this, how come everyone else managed to understand the task and this person? I'm like, well, maybe I just need to explain it more. Now, fast forward after a number of months, and I realized like this was a pattern. Um, Now, I don't know because I wasn't her therapist and I really barely knew this person, but over time, I began to conceptualize the situation as this person was involving me in some sort of recreation. Because what it was pushing me into was this position where I had to be kind of um, internally critical and and demanding of her in a sense. Like I would have to go to her and say, like, all of this is wrong. How did we? How did this happen? Or um, there it was it was a very weird situation, you know. And it wasn't like she came to me and said, "Here's here's what I did. I'm sorry, I didn't have enough time to do it." She handed it over to me as if it was good. As yeah, this is awesome. Here you go. And it, and it was a very strange, and so not only was it just the way I'm describing it on the surface, but it felt very weird to me. It was a very strange emotional relationship that I had with this coworker. It felt very uh, toxic. It felt very um, scary to me, honestly, um, in a way that no one else at work made me feel. And so I would... Um, uh, so I didn't really know how to conceptualize it back then because I, I wasn't really quite uh, as aware of things. And so these sorts of, depending on, again, the level of dysfunction, as the recipient of someone else's projective identification defenses, it can feel really quite bad in a way that's hard to describe, I guess, as, as I'm talking about it. it's. I hope you understand what I'm talking about out there. It's just, it's hard to describe like how weird it feels and how repetitive it feels. Because when someone's involving you in their projective identification, they don't say, I'm distorted. They don't say, I'm, I'm using a defense mechanism with you right now. They're, they're, they're probably internally totally convinced that everything is accurate and, and their perspective is accurate and their behavior is accurate. And so when they're interacting with you, you get this sense like, wait, am I crazy? Like, how come this is happening. It doesn't feel normal. This feels weird to me. And how come I, I'm, I'm, you know, like recently we did an episode with Umberto and Umberto was talking about how, um, actually this episode might air the, the episode with Umberto might air after this, after this episode. But so in an upcoming episode, uh, me and Umberto talk about how he got into this. He, he's been in a number of fights with one of his close friends and, the the emotional fights that he's had with this friend it's like periodic like every few years they have a blow up and then um umberto's friend completely rejects him and just like i'm done with you i i don't want to deal with you ever again and umberto is asking this question of just because he because umberto's like well is it me or is it my friend is it my fault or is it my friend's fault and one of the things that umberto is saying to himself is well i don't do this with other people like this I don't get rejected in this way by other people. I don't have this effect on other people, the the effect I have on on this person. And the person, my friend, this other guy, he tends to do this with all of his relationships. And so that, that's one of the, well, anyway, so let's get into how to deal with this. So I have four different, four different steps here. Number one is uh, if you want to protect yourself against projective identifications from other people, you have to be aware of the concept and the process. So you have to understand how projective identification works at first, right? You, you need to have a pretty good grasp on it. And when you have a good grasp on it, you start seeing it in a lot of different contexts. It starts to illuminate difficult relationships that would otherwise be quite confusing and upsetting. 
Uh, number two is occasionally take inventory of your relationships. So you want to reflect on all of your relationships. You know, after this podcast, just think, just do that. Take, take five minutes and go through all of your, even, even random people at work. You know, think about who you feel stressed around, who you feel non-stressed around, who you feel good around, who you feel bad around. And that's, that's a good starting off point is like, well, when I'm around this person, I feel tense. When I'm around these people, I never feel tense. When I'm around this person, I feel incompetent, you know, or when I'm around this person, when I communicate with this person, I tend to feel like I'm really needy or I'm really trying to get them to like me. There, there are certain clues to other people's projective identification processes when you think about how you feel in relation to that person compared to other people. Number three is once you've identified people who make you feel chronically bad is to talk with others about that relationship. So you want to talk with a therapist or a spouse or a friend or whatever, because what you're trying to figure out, as Umberto did, and I assume it, this episode will be after that, but anyway, um, Umberto talked it over with me, and he talked it over with other people, and he's because he's he's really upset about it. You know, Umberto's like, my friend rejected me. Uh, you know, it's I think it's not my fault, but I, I need to talk this out, and so. Talking about it you know, with my therapist, I do that a lot. I'll, 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 a good amount of therapy is is me talking about other people that stress me out and trying to determine like how much of it is me and how much of it is the other person. And sometimes it's pretty clear to my therapist that it's the other person. You know, she'll just be like, um, "I don't think you have any responsibility in that one. It sounds like that person has an issue that they are recreating with you." I, her, she uses different words, but. So that's the main way of discovery. Like you can think about it yourself for sure. Like there's absolutely, you can reflect yourself. Like, is it me? Is it the other? But I find you really just have to talk about it with other people because like with the, the Umberto episode, I, at, at a certain point, I'm like, well, it sounds like it's, it's your friend's fault. It sounds like your friend has the issue. But it, I also know you, Umberto, and know that you can be, um, very, you, you can be very intense sometimes when you're trying to make a point. He doesn't do it on the podcast ever. You, <laughs> in real life, uh, he, you know, he's just more loose. And so sometimes he can be quite intense. And so I pointed that out to him. I said, well, maybe your friend is reacting to that intensity. I don't think it justifies completely rejecting you, but I think that there's some blind spot that you don't necessarily recognize. And so that's the end. That's the benefit of talking with other people, particularly people who are close to you and who are honest with you, which a therapist is a good person to be. So, and then the fourth step is that if you've determined that it's the other person through, by talking with other people about it, then take measures to protect yourself. Uh, again, for me, when a lot of these people are at work, because I'm just exposed to a lot of people that I wouldn't necessarily choose to be exposed to when I'm at work. Um, I just keep my distance. I don't open up to them. I keep it very professional. I do my job and I, I do it with them and I don't, I don't communicate openly with them. I don't open up to them because in my experience, when I do that, then I'm more likely to be harmed by them and I'm more likely to, to be a target of their productive identification, which can feel, uh, I mean, in, in, in extreme ways, which I've actually experienced at work. This can actually become emotionally abusive. You can absolutely be emotionally abused at work. And that notion is actually not well proliferated in our society. It's like, well, it's at work. Who cares? People can absolutely be emotionally abused at work. And I have been emotionally abused at work. It's awful. And you're stuck with certain people that you have to work with. And in, in regular life, you can just be like, well, I don't want to be that person's friend anymore, or I don't want to hang out with that person. But when you're at work, you're stuck, you know, unless you quit and move to another job and work with a bunch of other people who have issues, you know, it's not like moving to another job guarantees you're not going to have issues of targeting by projective identification people. But it can feel really quite awful. And so what I've learned over time is is just to keep my distance from those people as best I can. And I, I've managed to do that in my work life. I've reached a point 
in my career where I have enough power, I guess, and a, and I've just sort of engineered things. I could go into the details, but it would reveal too much. I've just been extremely, uh, it's been an extremely slow process over a 25-year career of just slowly, uh, uh, you know, being moving toward people that I think are healthy and protecting myself from, from people that I think uh, are not healthy. So, uh, so there's that. Now, if they're in my personal life, then I think about what sort of relationship I want to have with them. So if they're a friend, for example, I might say like, well, they often involve me in their projective identification, but it's not too bad. And I'm sure I'm involving them in some sort of projective identification too. So, you know, take the good with the bad. Or I might say, well, maybe I should scale back with that person because this is getting too intense. It's too hard to deal with. And the the more time I spend with this person, the more it ends up starting to feel a little toxic to me. Um, I, I find that to be true with, with a lot of people like this. Because I think that one, when you first start, say you haven't seen a friend in six months and you hang out for, you know, one evening well, in that amount of time, you're sort of on your best behavior and you're, you're not super relaxed and you're not totally um, in the, the intimacy isn't totally deep. And so the projective identification process doesn't really have a chance to take hold and also doesn't really um, isn't really attracted to that relationship because it's it's kind of distant to begin with. But the more you, time you spend with, say you, you spend like three days a week with somebody well, undoubtedly, you're going to start evolving, involving each other's in each other's projective identification and uh, for good or for bad. And like I said in the beginning, projective identification can be extended into good things. So your friend had a bad day at work and you want to be there to uh, soothe them and to take care of them in that process. And you you listen to them talk for a half an hour about how work was stressful. Well, that's in my conceptualization, a recreation of a relationship that you had when you grew up, when you were being taken care of by your parents. So anyway, uh, now another last thing I'll say about this is that all clients recreate relationships with their therapists. So all my clients recreate their past relationships with me, but that's a very different thing. So because I actually encourage it and I actually am in a position where I can do a lot more work to um, set the record straight, so to speak. So let's say that um, let's say that that woman I was talking about earlier who would force me into a position where I basically had to criticize her and reject her and think that she was very incompetent. That was the that was the position I felt like I was being pushed into. Uh, a, a very critical rejecting other essentially is what she was socializing me into. Well, let's say she goes to therapy with say, let's say this, this, this very similar person comes to therapy with me and they start to push me as a therapist into a rejecting critical other by um, there's various different ways that clients will do that. I won't go into the details for time's sake, but, but, you know, she's doing that to me as, as my client. And I noticed that because I am always thinking about this sort of thing. And I think, oh, I'm, I'm having urges right now of rejection and criticism. What does that mean? What does this say about their internal representations that they've internalized as a child? I'm guessing that someone really criticized her as a child and really rejected her as a child. So that's interesting. And she's really trying to recreate this with me. Well, when you have an hour a week to, and you're just facing each other, you know, eye contact, and you have all this time to evaluate and talk and, and make sure that everything's okay, you have a lot of time to be able to repair tiny little ruptures or address, you know, microcosms of anxiety as a therapist. And so I'm able to manage that relationship with, with a client in a way that doesn't feel toxic to me at all. It just feels like a recreation. Along those lines, another reason, so I said earlier, you know, the reason why we recreate these things is because we're trying to get rid of an internal strife. You know, when we're left in a vacuum, we're rejecting ourselves, we're criticizing ourselves. 
Well, there's a lot of other reasons why we externalize and recreate these relationships. Another reason that we do it is because we our, our psyches actually know that there's a chance that if we recreate it, we might actually get a different result and therefore have a corrective experience. We're sort of testing the world. Like, I'm going to recreate this relationship, and if things go differently, then yay, I got to learn that the world isn't the way as bad as I thought it was. The problem is when it's done subconsciously and when the person is sufficiently um, mistreated, then their recreation tends to actually be very accurate to their past and ends up re-traumatizing them and, and bolsters this internalization. But, uh, but if you as a therapist are aware of these compulsions to recreate and you're aware of your own countertransference and you're aware of um, how all this plays out, then you know in your mind. So say you know with with this client, I'm having the, I'm having these urges to like terminate with her. Like I don't think she should be in therapy with me, or I'm having these urges to criticize her. Like I'm having urges like, um, I really think like she just does not think right. She has a lot of really dumb thoughts. Like I have these this this urge. That's the sentence that sort of runs through my mind. And then I think, wow, that was a weird thought. Let's go backwards from there. Why am I feeling this? What's happening in this person's life? I investigate the client's childhood enough to know that, oh, they were rejected and criticized significantly as children, as a child. And so in that moment, I know that I have this opportunity to provide a corrective experience. Namely, I don't criticize and don't reject. And it's a hard thing to do in the midst of therapy because therapy can involve lots of comments that can be interpreted and received and communicated as veiled criticism. But but uh, in the broad strokes, that's the opportunity. And that's, as a therapist, what we have this golden opportunity to provide people. With. They're, they're trying to force us into a bad relationship dynamic. And by resisting that, by being aware of that whole process, and by providing a non-bad relationship dynamic, even a, a warm, compassionate, accepting, non-critical, non-judgmental, non-rejecting, uh, relationship, you're actually helping to bolster a different internalization in them that has to do with safety and love and security and trust and all that kind of stuff. So I uh, hope that answers your question, famous patron Lyndon. All right, so let's go to the interview. But before we do that, I just have a couple announcements. Uh, one is is that the the um, Nonprofit that I'm a part of called Game to Grow. You might have heard other episodes in which we've talked about Dungeons and Dragons being used in therapy, particularly with uh, people with autism, but really just anybody. Uh, we, as of March 2019, we are starting our Kickstarter for people to get the kit to use Dungeons and Dragons with clients, with students in the community. So you go to criticalcore.org and you click on the Kickstarter and you can go there and you can sign up to get uh, the, the kit. So there'll actually be a physical thing that you get in the mail and you can actually use Dungeons & Dragons uh, with your clients. And uh, with the kit and also with the website, it can really help you to get started. The, the kit is perfectly designed rules-wise and scenario-wise for clients. And um, so I, I recommend going to criticalcore.org. The other announcement I want to make is that starting June 1, 2019, we are going to start new tiers on Patreon. So I, when I first started the Patreon four years ago-ish, I basically was just like, geez, I don't know what I'm doing. I'll just set these. So tiers are like, you know, different dollar amounts that you give per month. And I just sort of set it and forget it. I just didn't really know what I was doing. Well, as I've announced before, I started to involve my wife on the podcast. And so she's been looking into various different things to do to spice things up. And one of the things that she suggested is that we uh, revamp the tiers on Patreon. And so starting June 1, 2019, we're going to start a new tier system where uh, there's the $5 level, which is just the normal level. And then at the $10 level, you get you get stickers and other kinds of things. At $25, you get a mug. And $45, you're going to get one hour of consultation with me, 
or really, I guess, any of us, if you wanted to have it with Bob or Umberto or whoever, um, one hour of, of consultation. Now, with the mug and the hour of consultation, uh, it sometimes takes a couple months for us to process that. So it's not like you just sign up and immediately get the mug. We physically, me and Stacy, have to actually go make them, not make the mug, but like go to the computer, order the mug, have it delivered to us, then we deliver it to you. Like it's kind of a process. So it just takes a while. Um, you know, the whole, it, I also w- wanted to talk about Patreon, the goals that we have. So not only have these tiers, but there's also these goals where if we get a certain amount of patrons, then we've reached a goal and then we do something, right? So we recently reached a goal to give a scholarship, a $2,000 scholarship to a student in need. And we managed that. It was pretty cool. Well, we just crossed the other goal, uh, pretty easily. And now we're going to give out another scholarship for $2,500. I'll I'll be sending out an announcement for that in the future. Um, So we have a new goal, which is, uh, I I thought it'd be kind of cool to mix it up a little bit and we'll do a scholarship and give to PetFinder. So we're going to have another, so this will be a third scholarship, $2,000 scholarship, and we'll be giving $1,000 to PetFinder. You know, you out there, you patrons have already given thousands of dollars to help animals, to help students in need, you know, through Patreon, your money has gone to charities for animals, gone to scholarships, gone to help LGBTQ youth, gone to help the homeless. You know, we've already given thousands of dollars and that's because you all became patrons. And um, I think that it's a, you know, good opportunity to kind of spread that goodness around to uh, organizations that really need it. So again, June 1, 2019, new tiers, 5, 10, 25, 45, and uh, at the 10, you get stickers, 25, you get mug, and 45, you get one hour of consultation. Okay, so let's go on to the uh, interview after a short break. Hey, deserving listeners, we have a special guest with us today, Lori Gottlieb. Am I pronouncing your last name right, Lori? You are. Yeah, so Lori is on the podcast to talk about her new book and to also plug her upcoming uh, talk in Seattle, which can you give the details on the talk in Seattle? April 10th at Seattle Town Hall with Dan Savage. And we'll be talking about my new book, which is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. I've been looking over your book here and I want to talk about this because I think that the listeners will be really interested. What do you say? Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Lori, could you please introduce yourself to podcast land? I'm Lori Gottlieb. I'm a psychotherapist in Los Angeles. I write the weekly Dear Therapist column for The Atlantic, and I'm the author of the new book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. About half of our listeners are clinicians or students becoming a clinician at some point, and so I think that they should consider buying this book for a number of reasons, but I just want to start with the first reason. Your cover is to any therapist would resonate with them because you have it's uh you know you have the title and then behind the title is a box of tissues yeah i didn't i didn't want the cliched couch on the cover because i think it it doesn't speak to modern therapy in the same way and i think that most people in the therapy room can relate to um you know having to use tissues now and again yeah and in the book uh, I, I read the first couple chapters and skimmed the rest of it because I wanted to make sure that I could speak with uh, some authority when we talk about it here. There is a fair amount of crying in, in the book, not only because you talk about your clients, but you also talk about yourself in therapy. I do. So I show both sides of it. Um, and I think because you you read more of the beginning, there's more crying at the beginning than at the end, um, as as with any therapy. Um, but I do, I, I bring people into the room to, uh, you know, get a behind the scenes view of what it's like to work with these four very different clients. And they're all very different in terms of gender, age, um, issues that they're dealing with, histories, all of those things. But then I also bring people into the therapy room with me and my own therapist, because I wanted to show that we're all more the same than we are different. And I felt that I wanted to write a book about our shared humanity and 
felt that I needed to include myself in that. Yeah, it's an extremely relatable book and funny book. There's a lot of humor in it. Uh, you will chime in your own thoughts as you're going along. You know, your therapist will say something, and you'll you'll just be like, "What? What kind <laughs> of an a- what kind of an asshole therapist says this sort of thing?" You know, I'm not quoting you exactly, but it it there's this uh, inner dialogue that you talk about, and then you know, eventually it resolves itself as the book progresses. And you talk about your personal life. I, I think that this is in the tradition of Irvin Yalom and Jeffrey Kotler. Yeah, absolutely. In that you talk in a very frank, um, authoritative way about your work with your clients. You give a behind the scenes. You admit to your own faults. You talk about your own uh, emotional reactions. It's very human. And I was wondering if anyone has told you that they've assigned this book to first quarter graduate students. Yeah, it's it's definitely going to, it's just coming out now. So it's definitely going to be used in graduate schools in clinical psychology. Yeah, I remember reading Yalom and Kotler back in the day, and I, I have a similar feeling reading this book. This is obviously updated. It's more current, shall we say. Right. I don't think they had like the, 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 the Googling your therapist chapter that I have in there um, back when they were writing. Exactly. And I think that your book is funnier than their books are. Uh, And I was wondering if anyone's approached you to make a TV show about this book. Uh, Actually, um, it's in development for a TV show with Eva Longoria right now. Perfect. Because as I was reading it, I thought this reads like a screenplay or a TV play. Uh, I had the same reaction when I was reading the first Harry Potter book. I thought, man, this would really translate into a movie really well because the way this writer writes, it just lends itself to the screen. And as I was reading your book, I just thought it'd be a perfect comedy. I was thinking like a Tina Fey kind of thing where it's like meaningful but funny and touching at times. Uh, are you involved in the in the production of it? Yes. Um, and I think that it's, it's true. I mean, I think that life is like that. It's, it's, it's funny and it's, it's hard and it's messy. And I want to show all of that in the book. And I think that's what we want to show in the TV series as well. So I want to know about your decision-making process as you started to write this book. As an author myself, you start off the book essentially talking about uh, your breakup with somebody and how hurt you were, how devastated you were, and how upset you were about it. And then you went to therapy. That is an extremely personal, revealing. You're not uh, beating around the bush. You're, you're, you're telling exactly how you felt with all of its raw emotion and, and thoughts. Was there a point when you were thinking about writing that when you think, well, do I reveal this much? Yeah. You know, I think there are kind of two tropes of the therapist in our culture. One is sort of the the blank slate, the brick wall, the, you know, never uh, reveals anything about him or herself, um, even just through body language. Um, and, and I think that that's a very old model. But the other trope is sort of the hot mess, you know, the neurotic therapist whose uh, who's life is a mess, but they're really good in the therapy room. And I think neither of those is actually reflective of what most therapists are like. And so when I do reveal myself in the book, it's not it's not to say, oh, look, let's, you know, let's pretend that, um, you know, that I'm, that I'm the expert up on high, which is sort of the brick wall, or let's pretend that I'm the hot mess because I'm not. Um, I'm just like everybody else. And I think that's what I was trying to show. So when I do talk about the breakup, which, of course, as we all know, as therapists, the presenting problem is rarely the only thing you end up dealing with when you go there, it's usually a sign of, of something else that might be going on as it was in my life. Um, but when I do write about it, I very much write about it from the point of view of, um, you know, lots of people go through these things and I don't think that I was that different in terms of how I reacted to it. Again, the book is called maybe you should talk to someone by Lori Gottlieb. It's, it's, uh, it, it's intimidating because it's, I don't know how many pages is it? It's like almost 400 pages. And, it seems like it would be a dense, uh, long read, but I think it, it reads real fast. It's extremely quick to read. It's a very easy read. Um, and there's a lot of, um, it keeps you uh, interested, I suppose, you know. Well, I think that the chapters are bite-sized. So the book might be long, but the chapters are very short. 
what's been the response to the book? Um, I've been I've been so honored by the response that the book has gotten. It's really, it's one thing to sit at your laptop and have something live inside of it and nobody else sees it. And it's something else when it goes to your editor, but it's something completely different when it goes out to a reader who doesn't know you or anything about you and says, I see myself in that book and I see myself in these clients and I see myself in your story. And that was my goal in writing it was to kind of show that all of these stories, even though they look very different, are woven together, that at our core, the questions that my clients are asking me are the same questions that essentially I'm asking my therapist. And my therapist in, in the book, I talk about how I was just starting out as a therapist at the time that this takes place. And the therapist that I went to was much more experienced. And so while I was I was his his client, I was also learning from him about you know, how to be myself in the room, how to bring my own personality into the room, how to have boundaries, but also be human. And I think that that people are relating to how I tell that in the book, how I talk about, you know, myself as a therapist, and then my therapist is therapist and what I'm learning from him. So your talk is with Dan Savage, a local hero in Seattle. Uh, And what is he going to be interviewing you about the book? Yeah. So we'll be in conversation about the book and we'll be chatting about all of the different themes and storylines. Again, that's April 10th at Seattle town hall. So you're a fellow marriage and family therapist being trained in that. Did that inform you writing this book at all? Well, yeah. I mean, so I'm, I'm writing, I mean, I, I was a writer before I became a therapist and I think that they're actually very similar professions. I feel like sometimes being a therapist is almost like being an editor because people come in with stories. And when I hear their stories, I'm listening not just to the content of their story, but their flexibility with the story. Is there another version of the story? Are there other perspectives that might be added to the story? Um, You know, and a lot of people come in with these old faulty narratives like I'm unlovable or nothing ever works out for me. Um, And I think what I do is try to help edit their stories and update them, much like I I do as a writer, is to try to write a version of the story that I think is most helpful and most true. So um, I think that's what I've tried to do in the book and is very similar to what I try to do in the therapy room. There's a funny part at the beginning of your book when you're – thinking about how uh, when you tell people what you do, the reaction, different reactions you get from people. And I've talked about this on the podcast before, and I thought you had a really funny either, you know, thing that you would say to that or just thing you would think, you know, because some people will say, you'll say, they'll ask you, what do you do? And you say, oh, I'm a therapist. And they'll say, oh, are you analyzing me right now? And then one of the things that you said was, well, if I was a gynecologist, would I ask to do a pelvic exam on you right now? You know, I'm not at work. And I, I just thought that was a hilarious response to that. I think that if people react funny, it's because they, they feel like um, you're going to see something about them that you don't want them to see. That, you know, I think we present ourselves a certain way socially out in the world. And I think that for people who have misconceptions about therapists, like we don't actually have x-ray vision into your soul. But I do think that some people think, oh, they're going to notice something about me that I don't want them to see that I can hide from other people uh, better than I could probably hide from someone who's trained to look for those things. Also in the book, I thought it was funny how you provided some commentary and a diagram of your your new therapist's office so you you go to your new therapist and you're you're meeting him for the first time and you're noting how different his office furniture is set up um and so you provide a diagram of your office and a diagram of his office and and you're you're thinking like where am i supposed to sit Can, can you tell a little bit about that experience Yeah. So when you're a therapist, you see a lot of therapists' offices. You see your colleagues' offices. I see the the offices of of the people that I work with in my suite. Um, When I would go for supervision, when I go for case consultation, you're in a lot of therapists' offices. 
Um, but when I walked into Wendell's office, the therapist I went to see, there was no chair in the middle of the room. And there were these two sort of L-shaped sofas against the walls. And I had no idea where to sit. I, I didn't know where he sat. I didn't want to sit too close. I didn't know, you know, like, do we sit catty corner from each other? Do, you know, how does it work? Um, and so I, I drew diagrams of both of our offices for people who, you know, haven't been in a therapy office to kind of show this is sort of the traditional setup. And this was the setup when I walked into Wendell's office and was lost as to what to do. So the whole time you were working with him, you sat at an angle to, you know, so if to people to visualize this in your head, the couches were in an L shape and there was no other chair. So wherever you're sitting, you're, you're at a 45 degree angle to the therapist. Um, so the whole time you're working with him, is that the way you sat? Yeah, it, it was. But, but what was interesting was the position that I chose to sat in was the farthest possible position away from him that anyone could choose. <laughs> and, and I thought nothing of it. Um, but later on, we realized that, that it was very hard for me to move into a closer position. And it sounds almost cheesy, you know, to sort of make such an on the nose um, an analogy, but it, it showed something about my comfort zone with being seen and being close. And it was, it was actually very powerful when that came up later on in therapy. Yeah. And you write about that, uh, correct? I do. Yeah. When you're sitting at a 45 degree angle, I'm just really fixated on this. Were you looking at him or were you looking ahead? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no. I mean, I would angle my body so that I was looking at him, but I was just hilariously, you know, laughably far away without even realizing it, how far away I was. It seems like my neck would hurt as a therapist all day facing a particular direction. You know what I mean? <laughs> you really are fixated on this. Huh? <laughs> I think, I think, um, you know, I don't know I, if you look at the diagram, if you kind of, if you kind of angle your bodies, you will be facing each other. It's just that you won't be, um, you know, it won't be like one person parallel, you know, wh where their, their sort of plane is parallel to your plane. You kind of have to angle your body. You write about dancing. That's all I'll say. Uh, I won't go into detail because it's toward the end of the book. Do you want to talk about that? Because I'm, I want to ask you questions about that. Is or is that spoiling too much of the ending of the book? I think that that might spoil something at the end. But but we can talk about the fact that Wendell is very unconventional, and he very much does things that, especially when I was starting out, I thought therapists just weren't supposed to do. And one thing that I realized in working with him was that it's kind of like if you're learning to be, if you want to be, a, you know, a, a professional pianist and you want to be um, really good at something, you have to learn the basics first. So you have to learn the scales and you have to practice the scales and then you can improvise and then you don't have to follow any music or notes or anything. You can improvise all you want because you have the foundational pieces there. And I think that he very much had the foundational pieces there and then was able to improvise from there on. And, um, and that allowed him to do a lot of things in terms of just bringing his personality into the room and not worrying so much about what the rules were. He was very boundary. He never crossed any line that was uncomfortable, but, um, but he very much, you know, did things that, that I thought therapists weren't supposed to do. And I don't want to spoil them for the listeners, but they'll find a lot of that in the book and they may be surprised by them as well. And it might make them think if they, if they are in the profession, um, about, how they practice and, and whether these might be things that they want to incorporate, not what he did, but just bringing more of themselves into the room. How does he feel about being in the book? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> he, I mean, he knows, he knows that there's this book um, and it's not out yet. And I have not offered him a copy yet. So, oh man. But I know that we will talk about it once, once I do, once I do give it to him. Um, are you still in therapy with him? Um, I used to go to him every week and now I go for what I like to call two nuts. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I were him, I would be very interested in reading this book. It is a, a lot of your thoughts and a lot of your observations of him. And it's a testament to his uh, good abilities as a therapist. I, I would imagine he'll be quite 
pleased with it, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be really interesting for him because I, you know, I think there's nothing in the book that I haven't talked to him about directly. So I don't think there will be any surprises, um, meaning any, any things that in, in the book that I, you know, didn't want to bring up with him at the time because I do everything with him that all of my, my clients do with me. Like, you know, I want him to like me. I see somebody in the waiting room and I'm leaving and I wonder if, you know, her sessions are more interesting than mine or why she's there. Um, I want to know that I matter to him. All the things that, that people generally feel when they have a, a strong connection with their therapist. Um, but I think that, you know, there were things that I felt too ashamed to bring up at the time, like, like when I finally do ask him if he likes me. Or um, there was a time that I Google stalked him <laughs> one night. And, and then I had information about him. Nothing, nothing strange, but just I had information like I knew that um, his father had died at a young age suddenly of a heart attack. And my father, I had been talking about my close relationship with my father in therapy and how I was so lucky to have this time with him as he's, you know, old and, and, you know, nearing the end of his life that we have this time together and how important that was to me. And I started to edit myself in the therapy room because I didn't want to make him feel bad or, or make, you know, talk about something that might be painful for him because I had this information about his father that he didn't know I knew. And, you know, ultimately I did fess up and, and it was like all the air returned to the room. And I think that, that those things that I talk about in the book are all things that I eventually did talk to him about, but it's, it's, uh, it's a very real portrait of, you know, what happens in therapy and how sometimes even when we think we're being very truthful or we're in a space where we're, we have the safety to be very truthful, that sometimes even then we don't bring things up for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, I think that, that you brought up and many other discussions that you get into are extremely normalizing for clients. I would imagine that for non-clinicians, this is also a recommended book as well. If you're in therapy or you're interested, a lot of our listeners, about half our listeners aren't clinicians and are interested in psychology and therapy and might be in it themselves. And reading a, reading this book is extremely normalizing because for a therapist to go through similar emotions and urges and insecurities is uh, it's like, well, if they're, if, if they suffer from this, then I guess I'm really normal. Right. Right. And I think the other thing about therapy is that unlike other professions where if you're working on a project, you can, you know, you, you can like work with other people on a team. Most, most professions aren't that solitary. And I think in ours, no one sees the work that we do other than our patients. And so, yes, we go to case consultation or we have, you know, consultation groups or we might, you know, talk to a colleague between sessions and get a quick consult, but they're not in the room with us. So not only do they not see, you know, what we can do better, like in real time, we're describing the situation to them if we're getting a consult, but they don't see a job well done either. You know, they don't see like, oh, that thing that you did, that was really effective. Um, you know, so we, we, we get neither praise nor feedback um, that, might, that might help us. Um, and so I think in the book, people are offered a lens into all of that in a way that just as therapists, because of the nature of the profession, we don't normally see. Right. I've often said that to my students and supervisees that if you're training to be a plumber or an accountant, your supervisor is in the room with you while you're doing your work and can immediately give you feedback uh, to what you're doing and give you direction and also bolster your self-esteem about the job. Whereas being a therapist, although sometimes supervisors are in the room, it's pretty rare because it's, it's expensive and intrusive to some clients. And so we're just left alone in, in the room. And, and yeah, I'm glad you're bringing this up. And I'm, you know, I guess your book helps to address this uh, blindness, I suppose, to ourselves and to the outside world about what we do. I remember early in my career thinking, if only that what is happening right now in this five minutes of, of this session, if only the world knew what this person is doing right now, uh, it would be inspirational to the world. You know, the things that I would observe my clients do and the things I would observe them transform, I, I just thought, 
this is a glorious, wonderful moment. And we're the only two people that are going to know this happened. (laughs) Yes, that's such a good point because so many times, you know, something magical and transformative is happening in the room and you two are the only witnesses to that, to that experience. And it's, it's unfortunate because you wish that the rest of the world could see that um, because it, it's so inspiring and it, and it also could help other people to see the potential for change. Um, so that's such a good point that a lot of people don't get to see a lot of the, the beauty that happens in the room too. So you answer questions in the Atlantic, is that right? Right. So it's an advice column, but with a twist. So a lot of advice columns, which I love, I, I love advice columns and I, I have so much respect for my colleagues who, who write them. Um, And, um, you know, every advice columnist has a different personality, a different way of approaching a problem and a different level of directiveness or prescriptiveness that they might include um, as their style. My style, because I'm a therapist and I I don't think the other ones out there um, tend to be therapists, um, but they offer great advice nonetheless. Um, but because I'm a therapist, I really wanted to, to have people write a letter in and then hear how a therapist might be thinking about their situation, but might not say in that first session. So I'm kind of like, here's, here's another way of looking at your problem as opposed to here's whether or not you should talk to your mother-in-law. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to answer it that directly. I'm going to say, here are all the moving parts. Here are all the pieces of this that I would be looking at as a therapist. And I hope that by holding up the mirror to you, you might be able to make a better choice about what to do because now you can see the situation um, more broadly. And the book is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. Again, she's going to be at Seattle Town Hall April 10th, 2019 because sometimes people listen to this up this episode like years from now so it's 2019 and if you are in the future maybe you could watch her tv show what what's the tv show going to be called do you know yet uh i don't know if it's going to have the same title yet laurie thanks for joining us uh, today it was, it's been a delight oh it's been my pleasure thanks so much 